Hello everyone and welcome back to the Computer Vision in Production podcast show. The podcast show where we talk all about everything computer vision. From the individual components of the technology including vision, cameras and deep learning. Right through to hearing about some of the most interesting applications that companies are using at the moment. Hello everyone and welcome to the Computer Vision in Production podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Kelly. Uh, today's guest on the show is Kevin McNamara, and Kevin is a founder at Parallel Domain. Kevin, welcome to the show. It's it's good to have you here. Hi, Anthony. Yeah, great to be here and excited to talk today. Good. Yeah, very uh, very nice Irish name there. Is there is there heritage of Ireland in there somewhere? Yes. Yeah, you're exactly right, and you're one of the few people that uh, on the first try there pronounces it right. So thank you for that. <laughs> if I if I had said it wrong, I don't know. You'd you, have to be ashamed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be happy with myself. But um, look, Kevin, great to uh, have you here, and just uh, for the people listening, how we're going to go through this is we're going to talk a little bit about Kevin, a little bit about Parallel Domain, and then some of the stuff that they're working on and how they're applying computer vision. But before we do that, let's set the scene with yourself and start off by giving an introduction to you. You know, who is Kevin McNamara and what did you do before Parallel Domain and before computer vision? Yeah, sounds great. I'll I'll, I'll try to go through this part um, fairly quickly because I think the really the meat of the interesting stuff will be will be about uh, what we've been doing the past couple of years at Parallel Domain. But um, I think yeah, a quick story about how how Parallel Domain came to be is is you know fairly um, uh, lined up with the, with the story of of how I what I was doing before and and how I ended up founding the company. So my background is in computer graphics, and that really started with. And it started in childhood with a fascination uh, around video games and uh, animated movies in particular. You know, I think a lot of us back in the 90s and early 2000s watching Pixar movies were just super inspired about the potential of what computer graphics could could do. And so that became a fascination for me and, and studied that during university and got the chance to go off and work at Pixar for a bit while I was in university working on movies like Brave and a little bit on uh, Monsters University. And uh, that was a real jumping off point for me to to really get to use code and computer science to make not only beautiful, but very kind of immersive and compelling 3D worlds. Uh, and so after Pixar, got an opportunity to go over to Microsoft Game Studios. This was right around the time of the launch of the Xbox One. And so worked on a handful of launch titles that that shipped with that Xbox. And for anybody who's not maybe not intimately familiar, Xbox One is not the first Xbox, but it's actually the one that came after Xbox 360. A real, real confusing name scheme. But worked a few years at Microsoft Game Studios and really started to get deeply involved in something called like procedural or, or programmatic content generation, where where you know, we have essentially software engineers, but in that industry, we call them uh, technical artists who write code that help generate virtual worlds at a really large scale and in a high level of detail. And so did that in video games for, for a while and uh, eventually got an opportunity to join Apple and join their special projects group. Now, this is back in about 2015 and start to use all of that kind of games and animation and graphics background and virtual world generation background started to use it specifically for helping to train and test AI, uh, working on their autonomous systems project there. Um, so had a great time doing that for a while. That's what brought me uh, to California, to the Bay Area, 
And uh, actually, while, while working there, that's actually where I met James, who's now our, our CTO, Chief Technical Officer. And James has been with us for, uh, what is it, over four years now. So that's really exciting. Spent a few years at Apple, really saw firsthand some of the struggles of, of data acquisition. Um, how do you obtain, collect data that you need for training and testing better AI? But then also, how do you label it accurately? How do you sift and filter through it? And how do you actually assemble data sets that are going to train better models in meaningful ways? Um, seeing that that was a huge problem in machine learning and then lining that up with the, the technology of computer graphics that could help go solve that problem was, was very, very exciting to me. Um, so just over five years ago, it's, it's weird to think it's been over a half, half a decade journey with Parallel Domain, I left Apple and, and founded Parallel Domain. So this is back in, in mid-2017. And uh, I'm sure we'll go deep into uh, you know the journey of, of how we've grown Parallel Domain from there, but that's at least the background for how I got here. And, and it really was kind of this step-by-step process of you know, kind of entry through computer graphics and then eventually into AI, autonomous systems and machine learning after that. Yeah, it's it's not a very common way to get into uh, computer vision through like the computer vision, the computer graphics space. And it's actually funny, the trend now is is more people going from computer vision more towards the computer graphics. Um, and I'm sure it's going to, we'll see a lot of relation with that. But I guess you were looking at it from a gaming and maybe about three, four years ago, it started flipping and now computer vision is being used towards augmented reality, right? And different areas. Before we talk about that, because I don't want to give away and say say the other area, what is Parallel Domain and how did you shift from graphics, game design, you know, technical artists to computer vision, Parallel Domain? You know, at the end of the day, one way you can define computer graphics, you know, people may take a, a view of computer graphics, meaning, you know, a very specific type of, you know, 3D rendering that's used in games. But the reality is the broader definition of computer graphics is when a computer generates graphics, right? And that can, we'll get into this later, but that can be AI, uh, generative AI-based methods. It can be, you know, pure rasterization or ray tracing or GANs, all sorts of things. So I think the really cool thing is we've we've started to broaden that definition and category of computer graphics, which is to say, how is a computer generating um, both visual imagery that you might see in a camera, but all sorts of sensors like camera, LIDAR, and radar, et cetera. So I think that broad definition of graphics also helps, probably helps people see how this broadly applies to, to machine learning today. But a quick synopsis of parallel domain. So you know, in really short order, what we do is generate, we have a synthetic data generation platform and our customers generate synthetic sensor data to accelerate their training and testing processes for developing computer vision and perception models. And so really the use case is you might have somebody who's developing autonomous vehicles, driver assistance systems, delivery robots, delivery drones, even mobile computer vision that we use in our phones now. Those companies want to develop and release and deploy great computer vision and perception algorithms, we massively accelerate that data acquisition and curation process for them by allowing them to generate synthetic data instead of having to go out to the real world to collect and label that you know, with real cars and then real humans labeling that data. And so in a lot of cases, the value proposition that we provide back to our customers is we say, 
hey, we can accelerate your data acquisition process by you know, 100x by allowing you to get data you know, in hours instead of days or months. And in a lot of cases, that data acquisition cycle is the main limiting factor. It is the biggest bottleneck today in developing great machine learning algorithms. And machine learning is a broad category, but even more specifically in computer vision and perception, uh, data acquisition and labeling, that whole cycle is very slow and it's very human-centric with real-world data today. So being to able to accelerate that cycle two orders of magnitude actually then accelerates our customers' development processes by the same amount. Now, let's get into the degree of uh, parallel domain and, and ways of looking to, to solve challenges. So you mentioned you've, from your experience with Apple, you know, Microsoft, some of the hardest things to do is, is the that data acquisition and that labeling topic, but that's, users sort of coming in at a data acquisition with synthetic data. Tell me, how, how does that work? And how does it, I suppose, defer to actual data acquisition of, you know, real life data with real life labels and kind of just sort of spitball some of that to me in some, I guess, some nice headlines, but you know what the key winners are for use. Yeah, it's, it's a good opportunity to, to really quickly, you know, talk about what you know, what the status quo is in machine learning today and, and how we think that really changes things in a big way if people move to synthetic data. And then I can also give some, some really concrete use cases, you know, success cases from customers. You know, the first thing to, to recognize, I think a lot of listeners will probably already know this, so I'll move through it quickly, but the, the way that people have been training and testing machine learning models, you know, really since the, the advent of, of neural networks, which is actually quite a bit older piece of technology from, from the 80s than, than I think a lot of people recognize. But the way we've been training and testing those models is to go out to the real world and collect data. And let's take autonomous driving or, or even driver assistance, right? Companies like Toyota trying to develop, you know, the next year's driver assistance systems for Prius and Lexus, et cetera. You, you put cars out into the road, you have to go collect data, you kind of drive around a bunch waiting for difficult and interesting things to happen. And this process is really, really slow. It's really time consuming. You have to put lots and lots of cars out on the road, which is dangerous. It's expensive. And you hope that you observe lots of different cases happening. So you collect all of that data. It might take you weeks or often many, many months to go collect large data sets. And when you bring that back, you say, okay, well, I've got this massive heap of real data. I now need to sift through it, often manually, you know, with people just looking for interesting cases. They'll then send that off to data labelers, like human data labelers, to get that data labeled. And there's, you know, big companies that have sprung up that are essentially go-betweens that help companies, you know, pay those labelers to, to actually label that data. Once you've got that heap of data that's labeled, now you're ready to go train, like supervise machine learning algorithms. That whole process being so slow and expensive, it's that process that we're looking to, to augment and replace with synthetic data. And so what we do is we first start with the definition of, well, what is synthetic data? That, that definition, you'll find some people go with pretty narrow versus pretty broad definition. I, I really prefer the broad definition, which is to say synthetic data is data that's generated by software rather than collected in the real world. And so when you use that term generated by software, it has a pretty broad definition. There are lots of ways to generate synthetic data. And we'll start to get into the details here of whether you're using generative AI or whether you're using 3D simulation or some combination of the two. The primary approach that we take is that we generate 
3D virtual environments through a combination of, of you know, code and software that we wrote, but also generative AI techniques that allow us to generate lots and lots of roads and streets and buildings and, and different geometries that our customers might encounter. We then have a big team that implements simulation systems that fills those worlds with cars and people. This is all happening in a 3D virtual simulation. And now you've got this living and breathing world of all sorts of scenarios and locations. And then you can simulate data collection happening inside of that. And you can simulate the sensors on those vehicles, again, whether it's a car or a drone or a mobile phone, you can simulate the cameras and the LIDAR and the radar. And what you actually get is, is simulated or synthetic sensor data out the other end that was generated through software. So it can happen faster than real time. It can happen across thousands or even millions of instances in the cloud at the same time um, so that you can generate massive amounts of data. But then the real beauty at the end is because the computer generated the data, it knew what every box, what every pixel, what every arm and leg and rear view mirror was inside of that virtual world. And so you can then build automated labeling software to just go in and tag all of those things in a very, very accurate and consistent manner that gives you all the labels you would ever need um, to actually train machine learning models. And so it's just this, this massive speed up of moving what is a real world process human-centric process of real-world data collection and labeling, moving that into software, moving it into the computer. And, and what we like to say is like with Parallel Domain, our customers are able to train and test their models at the speed of silicon, not humans, because everything now is moved into the software. And so that's, that's a huge advantage for moving faster, but also a really big advantage in terms of accuracy and, and removing some of the human error from that equation of preparing that data. Does that make sense? It does, yeah, it does. I do have a, a question, and I, I hope it's one your customers ask too. What do you do with unknown cases? I don't know. Let's say someone runs out into the middle, perfect time of the season for it now, right? Someone runs out into the middle of the road dressed as a giant hot dog because it's Halloween, right? What <laughs> is, you don't train a data set for that, right? So you're what, what is the case for something like this? An, an outlier, we'll call it. Yeah, it's, it's a spot on question. And, and I think what you're really getting to is there, there are essentially two types of unknowns, right? One is the known unknowns, like the, the things that we know we don't have enough examples for. So like we know that there are lots of ambulances in the world. Our customers know that, um, for example, you know that somebody could dress up in a hot dog suit. So that that's even a known unknown. There are these situations where we know they happen, we know that they're rare, but we also know that they're important to deal with. That's really where we focus a lot of our time, if not all of our time, being able to generate very large data sets for our customers of the cases that they know they can't replicate enough in the real world to get enough training and testing data for. That's really where we spend a lot of our time. And what we focus on is not necessarily trying to build all of those cases ahead of time and saying, well, we just got this big library of stuff that we've already thought of and you know hopefully that covers everything that's not a scalable solution and you're just very likely to miss cases that are important to your customers what we're really focused on today is reducing the time down to near zero of how long it takes a customer to show us or input a case that they've observed in the real world and then replicate many, many, many variations of that case in synthetic data. So to your point, Anthony, like if you see a hot dog costume running down the street, Customer may encounter that in the real world, or they may just know that it exists. What our software enables them to do is very quickly input that case into our platform by either using the API and using the controls that we have to essentially describe it, 
or some technology we're working on now allows the customers just to input the images of those things, input the examples that they encountered in the real world. They say, actually, I don't really even know what this thing is, but I saw it out there. And our platform can then take that as an input and generate lots of variations that help them go solve that problem. And what we're not really focused on right now as much is the unknown unknowns. So that is to say, like the stuff that nobody really knows or we don't really know exists and it's maybe something that would happen in the future, but we can't even describe it right now. Well, those things are actually so far off in terms of like our customers are trying to get the cases that they already know are difficult to deal with. They're trying to get those cases worked out that the kind of unknown what could possibly happen, maybe an earthquake happens and opens up a giant crevice in the road. And like those kind of cases, we're just really not focused on today because our customers are trying to solve the the stuff that they already know is really difficult for them. So reducing time to essentially describing or inputting a description of the problem they're facing, reducing that time to when they get a lot of synthetic examples of that case, that's a top priority for us. Nice, nice. So what sort of data do you use, do you generate? You mentioned autonomous driving. Can you give us some examples in, in that domain? What what you are actually developing? Are you just developing people? Is it just yeah. camera data? You know, kind of, yeah, the, the options. Where, where, where do you start and where do you stop? Yeah, the stuff that we, we deal with most often are the cases that are hard to find enough examples of, but are actually, you know, to, to our human brain, fairly common. So, so some, some examples here would be construction zones or street signs or jaywalkers or vehicles pulling out of a driveway. These are actually all cases that that multiple of our customers are working on where, look, we, we all know that those things happen and, and all of our customers have observed those things happen in the real world, but the variety of different ways that a car can pull out of a driveway, right? And the variety of different ways that a construction zone can be laid out with traffic cones in different places or cones tipped over or something obstructing your view. Synthetic data and the way that we generate data in this kind of combinatorial procedural fashion is really, really well set up to go generate all of those variations. And so when our customers are using our data, they might train a model to more accurately detect whether or not a car is pulling out of a driveway or whether it's just parked in that driveway. Right. Another example is uh, Europe has recently released what's called like ISA compliance regulations where people have to be able to recognize speed limit signs and certain types of speed limit signs in order to put certain levels of autonomy out on the road. And so we're finding a huge demand from our customers right now to be able to generate all of the different signs in all of the different European countries to be able to recognize and classify those signs through computer vision. And so that's a very tangible use case where now we've got many, many hundreds of different signs in our system and our customers can generate these large automatically labeled data sets of all those signs on different roads and in different lighting conditions. And now they're able to train models that much more accurately and not only detect that sign, but can then classify what type of sign it is. In the past, some other cases our customers have worked with is like a school bus detection, jaywalker detection, bicycle detection, things like depth estimation, right? Being able to estimate how far away different things are in the scene or even something called optical flow or, or essentially velocity where you're estimating how fast and what direction is something moving in front of you. These are all cases that customers are currently solving with our data and they're using, it's important to remember that computer vision is a big focus, you know, cameras, 
camera data is a big focus, but more general perception is where our customers spend a lot of time, you know, camera, LIDAR, and radar, sometimes all combined together, sometimes independently. But all these use cases I'm talking about, uh, customers are often using multiple different types of sensors to go perceive those things. And for people who want to dig a little bit deeper, I, I would recommend people go to our website, paralleldomain.com. We've got a couple of kind of like use cases up there. Uh, check out the blog section. Um, and we've got a, a few examples of how you can actually use synthetic data to train better perception models if you want to dig a little bit deeper. And some of those articles go quite deep on the technical details and, and will even help you replicate those results on your end if you'd like to. Yes. So then talking about the software generated data that you've you've mentioned about for your synthetic data sets, how do you develop that? Are you using something like a GAN? I've I've heard of some companies even using, you know, scrapers that they're they're able to scrape information off public repositories. Like where are you guys coming in at with this? It's a really fascinating time to be talking about this, by the way, because the really short answer to your question is that we use both 3D simulation and generative AI to generate our data. And I'll go into more detail about kind of how and where we use those different things. But the broader theme happening right now is there is just an absolutely astounding explosion happening in generative AI. I mean, most people have probably now seen of course, some of the older stuff like uh, Dolly and GPT-3 and things helping with both language processing and, and generating images, but the really fascinating advancements recently around stable diffusion and, and some of the related fields are, are just shockingly incredible. The, 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 the amount of kind of quality improvement that we're seeing week over week in these generative models is, is fascinating and very exciting for us because what we're now starting to do is say, hey, look, you know, we've got our synthetic data platform and that can generate a lot of different scenarios and worlds and you know, different objects and people and cars and things doing different stuff. But how can we actually use that plus all the information that's on the internet, plus all the information that our customers have collected? How do you use all of that to actually inform an AI to how to go generate variations of those things? And we're really seeing a lot of promise in using some of the advancements in generative AI to create new variations of things in a much more scalable way by, by having the AI learn from both the data we've collected and the content that we've built in the past, uh, how to go generate variations of those. And so today we use we often use GANs for a lot of domain adaptation work and making the data more realistically aligned to what the customer is seeing in the real world, kind of like at the end of the generation synthetic generation process, but now we're actually starting to see, um, you know, GANs are one thing, generative adversarial networks are one thing that have a lot of promise. But I think the leaps forward that we're seeing with things like stable diffusion, these diffusion models, is 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 a whole new category where we're seeing AI generate not only images but now videos and and most recently actually 3D models themselves, where we can actually start to use the generative AI much AI much earlier in the generation process. So at the beginning of that generation process now, how do we have AI algorithms that are deciding what worlds to build, what those worlds should look like, where things should be placed, and, and what kind of variety should be in that world? I think it's really an exciting time to be in the field. And it's also why I adopt fairly broad definitions of computer graphics and synthetic data, because I don't want people to think that the future is going to look like the same as the past 20 years in computer graphics, where 
we're not going to be, you know, 3D modeling uh, triangles, you know, prop by prop, car by car and street by street, even probably even six or 12 months from now. We're going to be working hand in hand with generative AI informing the systems how to generate new variations of things. And I think it's going to allow, I think one of the really exciting things happening in AI in general right now, it's going to allow humans to be much more of a shepherd or a director in telling and informing generative AI what we need, what variations we need, kind of guiding and pushing and poking in the right direction, rather than having to do all the really repetitive tasks that are required today to just go build 3D models by hand. So a lot of really ex exciting stuff happening with generative AI now, and, and our team is, is actually starting to see some really incredible benefits to harnessing that. Where do you stand on, I guess, companies that want to use a mix, or do you believe like a mix of real data mixed with synthetic data is optimal? Or would you say start fully synthetic, maybe apply some active learning and introduce real real data into a, a working model? Or look, what do you think on that sort of process? This is, this is one where I, I think taking a, a really clear and bold stand is important. You know, Myself, I, and our company, we see synthetic data as the future. You know, we have a, a firm belief and, and we're kind of marching towards the end goal of synthetic data being the vast majority of data that's used in training and testing AI models. It, we just, it's, it's, there's a level of inevitability there with the benefit that we've seen with how much faster, how much more control, what kind of results you can get with synthetic data. Real world data will always be useful for calibration, Real world data will always be useful for understanding the boundaries of what could happen in the real world, discovering more of those unknown unknowns, turning them into known unknowns. And real world data is often very valuable for fine tuning. But I do want to be clear that we do see and we are pushing towards a future where synthetic data is 90, 95, eventually 99, or even 100% of the data that customers are using. With that said, there's a, a we're in very much of a transition period, right, where I would make a different recommendation depending on which of these two categories you as a machine learning team fall into. If you're a new team or a new project that doesn't have a lot of real world data yet, use I would say use a lot of synthetic data early and train models purely on synthetic data in a lot of cases. We're seeing lots of customers quickly bootstrap models for cases where they just didn't have any real world data, maybe not collected yet, but in a lot of cases not labeled yet, you can actually go train a model completely on synthetic data that will perform reasonably well in the real world as long as that synthetic data is really high quality. And that's something we spend a lot of time on is making sure that our data is well calibrated enough to the real world and the domains that our customers are, are operating in that they can actually bootstrap models on synthetic only from zero and that perform pretty well then when tested on, on real data. But with that said, that's one category. If you're the category of user or customer or team that already has a lot of real world data, like of course don't throw that data out. It's really, really valuable. We are finding that for the customers that are more mature and already have a fairly high degree of performance, the best approach is to combine the real and synthetic data together, right? Use the real data that you already have as your starting point. You have to be very prescriptive and smart in how you combine the real data with the synthetic, but we're finding that when we do that, our customers are able to get a boost over what they achieve with real world data alone. So both somewhat different use cases depends on where you are in that journey from you know no data to lots of data already and slightly different recommendation for those two cases. But what we're seeing is that over time, 
our customers who already have a lot of real world data are starting to trend more towards getting more synthetic data than real. They're still doing their real world data collection, but the ratio of how much synthetic to real that they have is increasing drastically over time. And so what we're seeing is I think, you know, a couple years from now, you'll see these even these really mature programs that have the vast majority of real data today, I think you'll see the amount of synthetic that they're using grow in proportion quite significantly. And eventually that will flip to a majority synthetic. But those those customers that have been around for a longer period of time will, will take longer to do that, just given the body of real world data they've already collected. One of the common things I've, I've often heard people say when it comes to what to do when they're struggling to deploy a model, and I guess something I was always told was fail fast. Because at least if you fail, you know, you know where you can improve from, where if you always tinker with a model, you could spend forever tinker, tinkering with it and then have a fail anyway after uh, you know spending a lot of time on labeling data collection all over the same period of time. It's the perfect point that you're making because I, I you know, quite literally got off a call with you know, a fairly large autonomy program the other day that discovered exactly this, right? They had a a project coming up where they needed to detect a certain type of object and its orientation in the scene. And they had come up with their labeling spec. Okay, you know, we're going to go get a bunch of synthetic data, but we're also going to collect real data and we're going to have humans label that real data. So here's our labeling spec. And we ingested that labeling spec from them. And what we helped them discover without labeling an ounce of real data is actually there's no way for a human to consistently use this labeling spec to label what you want. Like the instructions are just, they're inconsistent. There are corner cases here that, uh, you know, this labeling schema is not going to work for. And what we enabled that customer to do, like you said, fail fast. Like the customer found out way, way sooner than they would have. And with a lot less lost money, if they had sent that labeling spec out and tried to get you know, a million dollars worth of data labeled and then realized after the fact that it was going to lead to a very poor and inconsistent model performance, that would have been a very expensive mistake in terms of both uh, money, but even more importantly, in time. And so we are finding very much like you said, synthetic data is an incredible way for a customer to very quickly prove that they have the right labeling spec, that they're trying to get the right type of data. Frankly, that a model can even learn the type of task, right? Have you picked the right model architecture? Are you using the right setup so that you're, you're not sending in something that's so complicated that a model not even going to be able to learn that decision boundary. Our customers can go prove those things out with synthetic data with our platform very quickly before they go into the really costly and time-consuming uh, process of, of collecting and labeling real data. And what that also does then is also helps, helps them set up a baseline ahead of time with the synthetic data. So as they start adding real data, performance can get better, but you've already got a baseline that's useful and, and has kind of proven that you've in the terms that we like to use, you've kind of cleared the pipes, right? You've sent something all the way from one end to the other and proved that a process will work. So yeah, I couldn't agree more with that fail, fa fail fast mentality because if you fail slowly, then you are uh, not only wasting time and money, but you're just, you're preventing you, you're slowing down your time to market with that product. So couldn't agree more. Yeah. Also then what jumps to mind is seasonality. If you want to build something quick or you want to gather data and it's summertime, you better be prepared for a long winter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, the speed and agility that customers can can move with synthetic data often allows them actually to kind of prototype and build and prove something on a time scale that matters to the company because on that time scale, they're 
they can actually make a decision for whether or not to move forward with that functionality or that project or that approach. Often with uh, real world data, it takes so long to get an answer that the the higher level priorities of their company may have moved on to something by the time they actually get their real world real world data done. So that kind of priority shift, it's it's really important to be agile and have a very quick data acquisition cycle. And synthetic data really helps with that. Good, good. So, I mean, we've mentioned it. We've just mentioned time. Clear examples in there of you know, how parallel domain are adding value to the machine learning cycle. Where else would you say you pack the best firepower for, for helping companies when it comes to, to adding value? Yeah, I, I really like this one because what I would love to take a minute to talk about is accuracy. And, and it's, it's partially based on, okay, what the accuracy of the machine learning model in the end, but what I really mean is labeling accuracy. And in a lot of cases, we, uh, we actually have a customer where we generated data for them. They went off and trained a model on a certain category, a certain class of, of object. We were doing some semantic segmentation. They were finding like, yeah, performance isn't that great on that class. And they weren't really sure why. And so they sent us a sample batch of data and our machine learning team took a look and uh, something like 75% of their images had a labeling error from the human labeling provider um, where classes were just mislabeled. Sometimes they labeled, you know, sidewalks and driveways together. And one of the labelers, you know, may have misunderstood the instructions. And so one labeler is labeling things one way. Another labeler is splitting those two classes. And the machine learning team, the customer didn't even know that that was the case. And, um, you know, we go back and we, we fix those those labeling errors. And then all of a sudden you see much better performance because now you're actually consistently labeling your data. You know, machine learning for all of its promises is, is still the machine learning process itself is still fairly naive in the sense that the answers that you give it, the labels that you give it are exactly what it's memorizing. So if you're inconsistent with those labels, which humans are tend to be very inconsistent when doing a repetitive tasks thousands or millions of times over and over again, if you're inconsistent with those instructions, the machine learning model gets very confused and, and doesn't perform well. And what we're actually finding is that many perception teams are deceiving themselves into how good their perception algorithms are because they are testing on that same faulty data, right? So they're going out to the real world, collecting data, having a, la having a human label provider label that data. They're then splitting that into a train and test set. And they're by, by training and testing on data labeled by the, the same faulty labelers, they're actually finding that like they're deceiving themselves into, into not really understanding like the cases where those labels may be wrong and their model was taught the wrong thing because they got a high accuracy score on that faulty data, then, okay, well, we're, we've now convinced ourselves that, that our performance is really high. Often what we find when we introduce synthetic data into the testing loop, we're actually helping the customers reveal areas where the human labelers were maybe labeling something wrong and they were deceived into thinking that their model was was performing well on that class. And so we find that not only helping customers fix those faulty real world labels is, is helpful, we're also finding that injecting synthetic data into the testing process is really critical because it actually helps you spot where you had problems with the labels on your real world data and where you may have been misunderstanding or even deceived into thinking that a model was performing one way when it actually was just responding or or following faulty labeling instructions. And so uh, that's a big one, you know, accuracy of those labels. I don't mean accuracy in terms of like pixel perfect, you know, and a semantic segmentation, every leaf of every tree is perfectly labeled. You hear a lot of synthetic data companies talk about 
you know, pixel perfect labels. And that's actually not how you want synthetic data to, to generate labels. It's not how humans label data. So when you mix real and synthetic data together, you actually end up with what we call a label gap where one data set was labeled way too accurately and one data set was labeled way too coarsely. And those things are just too far apart. What we actually have is software and systems that label semantic segmentation. For example, when you're labeling a tree, we, we put a tight but a more smooth bound around that tree because for autonomous driving, you don't really care where every single leaf was. What you care of is where the general shape of that tree was. And so we find that there's some things about how humans label data that we do want to replicate in the synthetic data generation, you know, the things about you know, simplifying some of the shapes. But the things that we really don't want to replicate with human data labeling is inconsistency. And that's one thing computers are just so good at is labeling things consistently every time. And so making sure that the not only the domain of the actual raw sensor data, real to synthetic, is similar, so there's not too much of a domain gap, making sure there's also not a large label gap is really important. And so, yeah, accuracy of those labels in terms of consistency is something that we've really seen customers benefit from as well. One final question then. What's the difference between, or benefits even, between testing on synthetic data versus testing real data? And when I say testing, I mean, you know, model testing, that that's that much. Very glad to, you're jumping into this because we're actually really starting to push our customers more to to also test their models. Most of our customers do a lot of training on our synthetic data. And now we're saying, like, look, if you believe, there's, you know, I like the logical setup of, if you're training on our synthetic data and you're getting a performance boost, you must then believe that the synthetic data is providing examples of cases that you didn't have enough representation of those cases in your real data, right? The synthetic data is additive. It's adding some new information that are helpful. The same then is true for testing, right? So you're, it's, it's a little bit hypocritical to say, yeah, we're going to use synthetic data for training. It's going to add more information. It's going to make our models better but then say, well, but no, I don't want to be testing against those cases as well. You absolutely should be adding those cases to your test set and adding those variations to your test set. So, you know, real world data is great for testing because you can you can use it as a, a kind of final check to really validate that what your system, what you believe your system has been doing during development, it'll actually do when it sees real data, when it goes out into the real world. But what we're seeing with synthetic data is synthetic data is a much better first line testing regimen, you know, nightly regression testing, kind of your first large scale batch of testing before you ever put anything out in the real world. Synthetic data can bring a much higher degree of variety, a much larger scale. And as we talked about earlier, a much higher degree of accuracy in terms of consistency of labels and outcomes um, that actually help you drive a lot more precision and a lot more coverage in your testing if you're using synthetic data as a part of that. And if you're using really high quality synthetic data, that data is good enough to test on um, because you were seeing that that data is good enough to train and then generalize. And we've done benchmarking to show that you test against synthetic, you test against real. If that synthetic data is really high quality, you get approximately equivalent results. So we don't currently recommend that people 100% of their testing regimen to synthetic. We recommend instead that they use it as that first line of defense, that really high volume, very frequent testing that you want to do all the time and you want to do it fast. You want to have a ton of different cases that show you where the system might be weak. Synthetic data is great for that. And then real world data is great for kind of that, that fine tuning, the last couple stages of testing where you're really trying to validate, hey, are all the conclusions that we've drawn so far actually going to hold up when we deploy to the real world? 
really, really good stuff and fascinating, you know, how you have actually sort of adapted to this synthetic data world so quickly. And I know of a lot of companies who who are moving into this space, but um, I get a lot more sense of realism that you guys are further along from not only a production level, but also, you know, what's next in terms of, you know, human in the loop, testing, researching what's what's happening. So really really good insights there kevin thank you and i do believe that has also uh taken us up to up to time for the podcast so again i'd like to thank you for your time as well kevin yeah thank you for doing this and always really excited to get to go talk about this stuff so appreciate your your time here and if anybody else wants to find more information about what we're doing uh, paralleldomain.com is where you can find us we're also of course all over linkedin and twitter and feel free to reach out to me or anybody at the company if you want to chat excellent thank you so for everyone listening this is the computer vision and production podcast i'm your host today's guest was kevin mcnamara who's a founder at parallel domain thanks a million kevin thanks anthony see you soon for listening to this episode of the computer vision in production podcast with your host anthony kelly to make sure you get updates on the latest episodes of the show make sure you subscribe on your preferred podcast listening app or add me on linkedin